Welcome back to the Bag Drop Untold Stories in Golf. Professor, how are you? Good, good, Matthew. How was your uh, How was your weekend? Had a good weekend. A lot of family time, a lot of productive. You can see I got the artwork hung yeah, behind looking, me in the looking office. Looking fresh. We, uh, I got a funny anecdote from the Considine family this weekend. We are back in Ohio now. Obviously, one positive to that is we do Sunday dinners at grandma's house. So... I, I thought this was hilarious. My my mom was making pork chops, right? Sunday dinner, family pork chops. Uh, has had some nice cutlets from the local grocer all, all laid out. And she she's a bit of a, a neat freak or germ phobe. She likes to clean things. So she rinses her her pork chops. She'll rinse them and then dry them off. Yeah. I don't know, decision. like, I mean, her, her pork chops taste pretty good. I never knew that she did this till yesterday. But but that's not the the hilarity. The the funny thing that that happened yesterday is she did her usual rinsed her pork chops. She uses um, dish rag like older dish rags for pork chops apparently. But she'll she'll dry them off with these rags and then she'll take the rags and keep them all together and then go wash them. Throws them in the wash. So she's doing this before any of us arrived and she's prepping for you know dinner time and she. <laughs> She takes the rags, she pats dry the the pork chops, and then she picks up the rags and throws them in, in the wash, like she's done probably a number of times before. Well, she she washes them and then you know turns the turns the cycle or changes it over to the dryer and throws them into the dryer for a full, you know, fluff cycle, whatever it is. And she starts, she thought it smelled kind of funny back there uh, by the washer and dryer. So she she opens the dryer. And she pulls out the the rags, the dish dish rags, dish towels, and about twelve pork chops. <laughs> my my no. my mother literally <laughs> washed in the in the washer, <laughs> and then changed the load of pork chops and put it in the dryer. I mean, I, did she invent a new cooking technique? Is that what we're going with? How, how did those pork chop taste? Dude, the rest, no, we didn't have pork chops. We ended up having meatloaf because the things were, you know, covered in, in uh, Tide. But uh, I spent the rest of my day thinking of puns around this. None of them were that clever, but just the fact, you know, I say, hey, mom, back before you guys had wash and dryer when you were kids, did you guys just hang the pork chops out to dry afterwards? Or, you know, how, how did you get them? I can just see you next time y'all playing tennis and you're in a heated match with her that you're dropping a pork chop chop reference to try to get in her head because I know she's still beating you. Uh, she is. I know my, that's my, still happening. Yes. And my, and she is a kind of a, a, not an avid listener to this podcast, but mom, if you're tuning in, I I apologize for sharing that with uh, the listening audience. But man, I, dude, I laughed so hard. Just a great, great way to end the weekend. How yeah, was Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Constantine, he's not sorry at all. Just keep licking him <laughs> on the tennis courts. She's, I am her son though. I am the the absent-minded, not professor, you're the professor, but I'm the absent-minded part of this show. Um, how was your weekend? You were traveling, you were off in- Traveling off in Omaha, places. made a quick stop up at Landman. Um, yeah, it was good. Had a big math ed conference, doing a bunch of catching up. Um, learned another fascinating fact this uh, weekend. We're deep diving some brain science stuff. We're about to do some uh, eye tracking research, hopefully. But so we're look reading a whole bunch of brain science stuff. The uh, the cool thing that stood out this weekend was you've had deja vu, I'm sure. Absolutely, um, I, I absolutely know. right. So like the question is, what is good bit. 
Yeah, what is deja vu? You know, what is that mentally? What's going on with the brain? Because it's different than memories. It's different than imagination. It's different than hallucination. It's different than all those. So what it is is this. Let's say you have a memory and you have, um, I'm going to butcher this, I'm sure. Um, So if we have any neurobiologists or whatever on the pod, you can email us and tell us how wrong we are. Um, But the general gist is this. Your memories are stored by neurons. So let's say we'll make it simple and say neuron A, B, C, D is your memory for a certain event. And it's that order of the neurons firing would be A followed by B, followed by C, followed by D, and that would be your memory. Deja vu occurs when those neurons fire, but not in that order. So let's say it goes B, A, C, D. So that fires... And there's then is an affective response that occurs that moves it to like the frontal cortex to like check that pseudo memory with the actual memory. And that's what deja vu is. So that affective response that you get, it's like, wait, I've sensed this before. I've, I've experienced this before. So some, yeah, something that occurs in your everyday experience that fires those neurons just in a different order and you get that affective response from that. Thanks for finally That's, setting me straight on that. I just I just followed what Inception said was going on. What, what was their answer? What was for I don't, re- I don't I've know. only seen it. I've only seen Inception <laughs> once. That's it. <laughs> but uh, so it's it's the neurons firing in the in a different order. So, yeah. but it's so it's not like obviously it's not the exact memory, but it triggers something to say, oh, this is a similar memory. Yeah, or like this is that memory, but not quite. So that's why it gets like a shift to the frontal cortex, I believe, which is like your analytic part of your brain. So to actually then like think about like, oh, what's going on here? And that's why it's so vivid to you, that that experience, that's a, that it is an affective response driven by cognition. Wow. Wild. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I th- th- this episode's a little deja vu because we're talking Canal Shores again <laughs> today. Right. Um, there's my we, transition. We could do a whole year on Canal Shores, and I'd be happy with that. We might have to because it's there's there is a lot for those that don't know. There's a lot happening at our little community gem on the north side of Chicago, um, Canal Shores. So today we have the golf course architect, the the principal Quintno Golf Designs, Todd Quintno, is is joining us. So. Um, we're, we're going to dive in with him and get a sense of what's going on. Uh, shout out to Golf Blueprint, our official partner of the Bag Drop podcast this year. Kevin, I am pleased to report that we had some sunshine in Ohio over the weekend. I did not make it to a, a, a range. I know you're going to start checking in on my practice routine, but I do want to tell you this. I went to the golf show uh, a couple weeks ago. I picked up those little foam uh, balls, those little practice oh, yeah. backyard balls, Oh yeah, and I did some 999. I had about 15 minutes between calls. I jumped outside. I did that, the the drill you guys have, which is 999 uh, with foam balls in the backyard. And honestly, it worked. I, I mean, you don't have the same kind of face interaction with a, you know, your, your, your full golf ball, but it, 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 it shapes. You can shape it and you can move the ball each way. It felt a little like a practice session. Well, I'm pumped you're getting out there practicing. I'm still going to hold off, send you a new plan until after the spring meeting because we don't want you informed going into that. <laughs> okay, uh, but then, all right. Then we'll, then we'll work on that. Golfblueprint.com. If you need to get your game in order, which we all probably do, uh, check them out. Without further ado, on to the show. Todd Quitno, welcome to The Bag Drop. Thank you, Matt. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I listened to your podcast, so 
I, I'm excited to be on it now. This is pretty cool. So thank you very much. It's, and hi to Kevin as well. It's good to have you. Yes, the professor is with us as well. Um, you know, the professor and I are both fellow Mac conference grads. I mean, you know, there's so many, it's almost like the Ivy League in a way. It's a small, tight-knit community. <laughs> uh, but you went, yeah. to, you went to Ball State. I, I want to know, uh, those that don't know Ball State, tell us, you know, it's mostly golfers listening to the show. What were the best yeah. courses for you to play as a college kid at Ball State in that area? Oh my gosh. Um, well, first, before we go into that, I have a question for the two of you. What is a zip? An Akron zip? <laughs> I've, I've, I've always wondered, but I've never wondered enough to look it up, I to think, be honest. Well, I think we're still trying to figure that out, aren't we? <laughs> okay. No, I, I, I grew up in that, high school as a hub. That was my mascot, so it was a terrible mascot. So I was happy to get a cardinal at Ball State. It's much better. But <laughs> Professor, uh, educate I, educate the man here. Come on. You know what this is. I mean, is. you grew up there, man, so you, you can correct me if I'm wrong. I believe like the roots of it go all the way back to the zipper. And that was, was it a rubber shoe or something like that? that it's, it's probably, and I love this little bit of history, Todd. So thank you for asking this question. I'm a little bit of a history buff. And so the Akron Zips got their name. And this is probably maybe the worst reason to name your mascot after a blunder. But essentially, uh, J.E. Goodrich, um, who started the Goodrich Tire and Rubber Company, also started, and John Bookdell, uh, started Bookdale College, which became University of Akron. So that's the two guys. They were rubber, you know, tycoons eventually, but rubber innovators. And they worked in the rubber factories, ran the rubber factories. But they started the University of Akron, and they created, uh, of many rubber products that came out of Akron, you know, in the glory days, they created the Glosh, which was a shoe, a oh. rubber shoe to go over your fancy shoes so you don't get salt and grime on it in the wintertime. When they created the Glosh, they put a metal thing on the side that was a zipper, right? That became yeah. the zipper. They, they uh, trademarked the Glosh. They did not trademark the zipper. So somebody oh. else made billions of dollars off the zipper. I think they <laughs> did fine with all their rubber tires and stuff, but yeah. that, that is why the Zips became called the Zips. I, uh, th there you go. Uh, I love it. I, I, well, uh, does Ball State have a similar story? <laughs> well, any school that you go to that starts with ball, you're going to get a lot of, you know, criticism for and, and ribbing. Yeah. So, you know, obviously the ball jar, the ball family was huge. But um, but anyway, you know, to answer your question from well, um, Ball State was I happened at Ball State. I always say that my career in golf architecture was more of a discovery than a journey. Mm -hmm. Right. And Ball State being one of those discoveries because um, I was going to go be an engineer for, you know, through high school. And, and that was my thought process. And I had a golf pro that I, I'll tell you about my club later, but I, I worked at a local country club and the golf pro was like, you should go try this Ball State. You know, I tried to get into the architecture program and I couldn't, and, and maybe you'll have a better chance at it. And I was like, okay, I'll give it a whirl. And I went out there and I loved it. Loved the school, you know, rural Indiana, basically. Um, and, and that's where I happened, you know, I ended up in the architecture program and, and in that program, there was a, a guy, I think his name was George White or right. I can't remember one of my professors and he, he, he moonlit, he was a moonlighting golf architect and he taught this tiny little class about golf architecture. And, and that's what got me into it. I, I had no clue that golf architecture existed at the time. Um, like I said, it was a discovery and, and I uh, ended up interning after that, but, um, you know, I, 
I played, I had some golf uh, uh, roommates that were rudimentary golfers. <laughs> so we didn't play anything fancy. There was nothing inspiring around Muncie, Indiana. Um, we would go up to Kokomo and play like the Chippendale course and anything that you could drink 10, 12 beers on was about <laughs> what we chose. So there was zero uh, looking at the architecture. It was it was about camaraderie. But right, that's what the game's about anyway. So absolutely. Well, absolutely. I got to jump in here um, being a professor. Like, I'm, go ahead. That's so, tell me about that little class, that one off class that he offered. How did you find out about it? And like, how did you stumble into it? Well, so I loved golf. You know, I, I started playing golf nine or 10 years old, you know, casually introduced by my parents and worked the golf course, played, you played a hundred. We had one golf course in our town it was a, a 18 hole private. I mean, it's a glorified Muni really, but my grandmother lived on the sixth hole. And the reason she lived there is her husband or my grandfather, who I never met was a superintendent at that golf course in the fifties and sixties. Um, I'll tell you about his legacy in a minute, but he, um, I, so I could ride my bike to my grandma's house and play the golf course in two hours and ride home. So like I would play hundreds of rounds a year. So I was into golf. I played high school golf, all that never really intended to go into the industry, but, or knew there was an industry. And then this thing came up as an elective, like learn how the nuances of golf architecture or, and we would go to, I think this guy designed like the Indiana Elks club or, or, you know, some real small things um, that were going on. And he took us out. There was a, I think it was like a players, I think it was called the players course or something like that. The ball state team played there. And that was like a big deal to me to go visit that. Um, he just showed us the rudimentary, you know, the rudimentary how to route a golf course. We got to route a course there and, and it just was fun. I loved it. And then uh, I ran into an alum there who was working in the industry. He had just graduated and that's how I ended up with an internship and ended up working at the same place for 25 years till this past year. But um, yeah, he, he was just, it, it was a one-off, you know, there was no one else in that in that landscape architecture group that even cared about golf. In fact, we were sort, it was sort of like the black sheep class, you know, cause it was, everyone looked down their nose at golf at, at ball state landscape architecture, but that's how we got into it. Todd, I want to, I want to place you, uh, cause I know you're from park Ridge. Or I know you live in park Ridge now. Um, right. is that your hometown as well? No, my hometown, I'm from Rochelle. It's a town, North central Illinois, just West of okay. Dekel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so I was curious just with looking at your, um, portfolio of courses and projects you've worked on your decent proximity to a, a good amount. What is it like living close to places that, you know, courses that you've built, will you visit more often? Do you check in on them from time to time? If, do, if you wake up at night and wonder about how, you know, a certain feature is holding up, do you get in the car and drive to check them out? Oh, yeah. I mean, well, when you live this close to where you work, you know, you can hear the critics like much more clear. <laughs> you know, it's it's a much louder thing. So, um, you mean, it's you not know, just Twitter. Golf, it's not the golfer critic, uh, the everyday golfer. And I, I, I check back in with clients all the time. You know, I want to understand if what we did is working, um, whether that, you know, and a lot of that is what's the golfer reaction for me more so than what's the critical, you know, bigger picture reaction from the nation. So, you know, I'll go back and, and make sure that, 
and I'm I'm especially maintenance minded with a lot of my work, and I want to you know I want to make sure that the efficiencies that we're building into things are are actually coming true, so that I can apply that later to other jobs. Um, but when you're close by, you get to hear the praise, and you get to hear the the criticism and the passionate reactions to what you do, and and I love all that, and I try to use it um, constantly. Like I said, I'm a discovery guy. I'm constantly trying to learn. Um, but you know, as far as when you're actually working, to be able to work close by to home and be on the job site, anybody wants to be on the job site as much as possible when you're in the architecture business, whether you're driving the bulldozer or you're directing the people that are doing it. So um, I love it when a project's within a few hours and I can be there a few times a week, um, be on site as much as possible. I'm not talented or skilled enough to be in a machine like some of the guys do today. So the more I can be there, the better. But yeah, I, I, it's fun and it's also a little bit disconcerting to work in the same area that uh, your courses are, or live in the same area your courses are built. Yeah, you're probably, if you're trying to get a cup of coffee and, and someone's talking about going to play one of your courses and you're probably eavesdropping a little bit. Oh, totally. Well, you're, you run into your friends and you're like, well, you played there? Oh, what do you think? And you don't tell them what you do, or, you know. Yeah. <laughs> okay, thank you. Got to go incognito. <laughs> Um, you said the term maintenance minded. I, I've, I, I think, you know, I, I've become, uh, as many of our members have kind of a, um, architecture, not aficionado by any means, but in interest, we all become interested in architecture. I think it's a great thing for you guys. Industry is that more, you know, uh, um, avid golfers, more hobbyists are, are kind of looking at it like, oh, this is really interesting art form and profession. And, uh, so, so I'm definitely in that category. I know the professor is as well. Uh, but I, but you said maintenance minded, and and I've I've heard so much more about how architects and designers are are being more intentful on on how the maintenance practices are going to be impacted by what they build. So for you, you said maintenance minded. What what does that really mean? How does that impact you know your approach? Well, <clears throat> I know you had kind of our prelude to this interview. You had uh, sent me some ideas on what to talk about, and you had you had asked about artistry versus practicality. Uh, which is a tagline I use in, in my profile. Um, you know, I think in every project that you complete, there is this inherent conflict in what is artistic and then what is practical to maintain specifically on the budget that of the club that you're working for, right? So you get into higher end clubs with more money, more manpower, uh, more machinery that you can do things that are a little bit more risque or dramatic, um, whatever, you know, Canal Shores, which we'll talk about, I know in a little bit is a great example of, of where we are really working hard to balance the artistry of what we're going to be doing with the five people that are going to maintain it, right? It's a, it's a minor crew other than all you wonderful, um, uh, volunteers. Don't, don't count on us. Don't count on <laughs> <Yeah>. guys. <laughs> but I mean, they've got a handful of guys that are going to maintain the place and they got a, a few pieces of equipment. So, you know, you get into like, if you want to really boil it down, there's details that we're working on, like how steep can we get side slopes on greens um, because of the machinery they have to maintain it. And it's a tug of war, to be honest, between myself right now and the superintendent, Brad, who's working there uh, a little bit of like, he's like, I can't do that with what equipment I have. So we have to be practical about how we 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 make those slopes. They they're going to mow all their greens with riding mowers versus hand mowers. How much room do you give them on the edge of the green to turn a mower around efficiently? 
Mm. You know, things like that that no one would think of. Um, but I, you know, in my mind, I, as an architect, I'd love to shove a lot of my stuff right up against the green, and I know I got to be careful with how that works because it's got to be maintained in an efficient way. Bunkers are a huge part of that. How much handwork are you putting into them? Um, can we do things that will allow you to to you know use less people? and then allocate that labor somewhere else. So that's where the, the efficiency and the maintenance comes into my mind, my, my thinking. Um, I think it helped that I worked on a maintenance crew growing up and you start to understand what it takes to turn a triplex mower. I think all of that plays into what we do. Um, and hopefully you can still get uh, the artistry in there, but also give them something that they're gonna be able to sustain. So one of the things I'm interested in. <laughs> so one of the things I'm interested in, Todd, going back to you brought the everyday golfer several times in earlier. I'm so fascinated, like I'm in, impressed by the skill set architects have in designing for the range of golfers that have to be considered. So I was wondering what goes into your thinking on that when you're looking at designing a course and thinking about the range, the all the way from the scratch golfer up to the person that maybe is just starting to learn the game. How do you think about that when you're attacking a golf course and, and designing it? Well, Kevin, I, I actually think that's like the biggest cliche in the industry, right? Uh, every golf course marketing thing is we are designed, we are built for the, the scratch golfer and, and the everyday golfer. It's really hard to do to, to, to actually achieve that. Um, you know, I think there are a number of ways you can attack that. Um, I think teeing equity to me is a big one that I like to to work on. You know, that I do a lot of my when we lay out tees for a golf course, I do a lot of my my work based on swing speed research. So how far do does a 60 mile an hour swing hit the ball, carry the ball versus a 110 mile an hour swing? And so a lot of that goes, a lot of that mathematics goes into placement of, of um, teeing areas um, and then trying to understand, you know, where, where are our primary landing areas and what are we trying to achieve strategically and maybe giving an angle to somebody who's on a forward tee that's, that can, can make the strategic carry a little bit easier or can bump their way around, you know pretty standard strategy stuff. And maybe there's a, a half stroke penalty for taking the easy way. So I think it's a lot of, you know, a lot of width in the golf course is helpful. You know, we'll talk about Canal Shores. There's, there's no width in that golf course. So <laughs> it's going to be tough to put real strategy into it. But, um, you know, and then it's, it's a, a, to me, it's a function too of, of how you manage your green surrounds. I'm a big fan of short grass, uh, the use of short grass and slope, because I think it, it evens the playing field a little bit. So you know, if, if you can have a, a lot of opening to a green where people can run a ball up, um, where your, your, your bunkers aren't requiring forced carries, things like that. And then you can use slope and short grass to your advantage, where if you get a ball that runs off the side and maybe funnels away, a high handicap player can get on there with a putter. They can get their ball back up onto the green and it doesn't have to necessarily get close to the pin. They're just happy to be on the green. A good player it's going to take a lot more thought on how you get that. I mean, Riviera was a great example, uh, number 10. I know a lot of those guys are hitting out of the bunkers, but a great example of how, how, how much slope can impact how you play a golf hole. Um, but again, it, it just it brings that option to putt for the, the high handicapper or 
a good player like you guys would say, do I, do I want to clip a chip and, and, and put some spin on this thing? Do I want to try to use the slopes to, to, to guide it in? And it just puts more decision making into the, so I think it evens things out a little bit. So that's sort of my broad approach to how you make it playable for everybody. Um, I also think that in the last five, 10 years, my strategy in, in general has been to simplify things. You know, I think we we had this period in the beginning of my career when, when things were just, yeah, you went, you know, you just went, it was overdone. Things were, things I did were overdone. And I'm, I'm actually going back and fixing some of that now. I'm, I'm old enough that I get to go back and fix stuff. But, you know, I use the term simple elegant eloquence and, and, and to describe my, my philosophy. And I think the more simple you can be with things and the more subtle you can be with things, um, the more you can you can cater to different golfers, uh, the good and the bad. Did do you have a handle now. on? We're like, gonna get to Canal Short. Hold on, I, I was gonna ask about some some other of your work before we get to diving in on on the project at Canal Shores and the master plan that was released. There was some uh, uh, other courses I've played of yours that, uh, frankly, I was probably prior to getting the architecture bug. So I wasn't necessarily flipping over scorecards to see who designed the place. But uh, I love, in Illinois, Blackstone, and, and I love the work at Schaumburg. And, and those two courses, to me, were just, wow. I gotta, I, and I've always wanted to have you on the show because of those two courses. But to lead into this question, one, they always felt old to me, even though they were newer designs. I felt like there was some classicness to it. It felt like it had a sense of place and, and all those terms that you know people kind of revere of the golden age type places. Um, Schaumburg's a municipal course. I, I think Blackstone is municipal, but it is public access. But it, it has that bit of, of uh, oldness, timelessness to it in, in the way that the holes play. And, and I just, I'm just a big fan. So one thing I'm curious about is, as we talk about those other courses is, um, who are your inspirations in golf course architecture? Are, do you draw from the golden age? Is it, you know, the place, people like we would expect, like Ross and others, or is it uh, give us kind of your, your muse in some of this stuff. And, and is that, how do you balance, you know, Todd Quintno original designs with your inspiration from, from others? Okay. So there's a lot of questions there. <laughs> yeah, that's um, a big one. Sorry. This is a big question. So I, I wanted, I want to talk to you a little bit about Blackstone and West and Schaumburg. So Blackstone, it, so I got into the industry when Blackstone was done in 2004. And that was like the end of new course design for most people. Um, you know, five, six went to crap. Um, Blackstone is is where I felt like I was getting to understand golf architecture. You know, and that was eight, ten, eight, nine years into my career. Um, I'd go back and change things there um, if I could. You know, primarily in the form of like the crazy bunkering that we did, the, the excessive bunkering. But what I love about Blackstone is that the greens there are really sneaky good. They're they're subtle, but they're challenging. Um, you, you, you can't necessarily, you don't necessarily know where the ball is going to break or where you think it's going to break. And, and that I thought we did a really great job on. I also thought we did a great job there on bringing some real variety. So there's two or three holes that are drivable, par fours. Um, they, they're strange in the routing now because the first hole, which is drivable, was supposed to be the 10th hole or was originally. So now to, to, to play a hole out of the gate that's drivable is not, not ideal. But 
Um, I just love that course because I think there's, I can't remember, five par fives and, and, and it's, an, and it's an, a, different, a different setup than normal. And I thought we hit something there. And then I never got to do another new course after that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I love that golf course. Gets a lot of praise. The property was great. The owner was great. And, and I think that's a huge part of what makes for a good golf course. If you have an owner who's receptive to what you're doing. Um, Schaumburg is, okay, I, Schaumburg for me, and, and I love that project. And, and I will say this from, a, from, from the public golfer aspect and the client aspect, we nailed that, that project because they, they love it. They're, the people that play it love it. Um, here's what I'm going to say, because I know the critics, the architecture critics, that's the Langford Moreau original golf course. And I know that, it, it, so this was a battle for me inside because they did not want to restore it to Langford. And I had gone in and said, I, I, you know, I had approached them about it and said, let's, you know, we have a potential story here. This is a, this has got some history behind it. We went up and went, played West Bend. Um, they had played Lasonia. And I just couldn't convince them that that was the route they wanted to go. It, the Langford had been taken out of it in the 90s. Um, it had been total disrepair prior to that. And this is more than you asked for, but, but it was in total disrepair before that uh, when the Park District got it in the late 80s. Um, and then they renovated it. And one of the big things they wanted to do was take the steep Langford features out. And most of them were gone. And so... I was like, man, let's bring that. And actually, all the all the greens were rebuilt uh, in the '90s, so none of that was there was original anymore. And so, as a compromise, because the client was, you know, wanted what they wanted, and and I was, I'm a client service guy. I wanted to make sure, and and not to mention, I was a young architect. We didn't have a ton of work in the in the night 2015s, you know. So it's not like I actually asked Gil Hans about this uh, in a sit down. Um, I was like, Gil, do I have a an obligation to go to the client and make sure they restore Schaumburg or should I walk away? And he's like, well, yeah, you, you probably do. You should walk away. And I'm like, well, what if it's my only project? <laughs> he's like, um, well, then you got to you got to figure that out yourself. But um, that's great. Any rate, uh, we we didn't get to restore it. And, and I know some people are just in the architectural world, the critic world are, are disappointed about that. Um, I tried, you know, we had some old aerials there and we pulled some of the old features back in, uh, in at least in their location and some of their angles and stuff as much as we could. Um, but in the end, the, the product they got there, it is serving them really well. They hit the COVID right on the money. They opened up and, and then in 20, you know, COVID hit. And so they're just, they're killing it and people love it. The people that play it love it. So the daily critics love it. Um, and so I'm very happy about that. And, and I think they're set up for, for a long, a long successful run. Um, so that was a long, long winded answer, uh, start to your question or who are my, uh, architectural muses? Um, you know, I think in the last 10 years, I've probably gotten more into the history uh, of architecture and, um, you know, I love the McDonald Rainer banks stuff. Um, I've done a little bit of template work. I, I, we did a par three course in Madison this couple of years ago, uh, called pioneer point. It's a 13 hole par three. And, and we went for it with, with templates. Um, I've done a couple here and there on some other courses, but that's, you know, I love, I love that work. I, one of the most impressionable rounds of golf I've ever played was at national golf links. 
Mm. Um, probably my favorite round ever. And I just loved the, the I just loved what he does there. And and what's so interesting about McDonald um, and, and Rainer as well, and what they do is like their, their, work, their shapes are so contrived, right? There's nothing nature-based about what they do, but the way they fit it on the ground and the way they they make the, the strategy that you're trying to play and they use slope is incredible. Um, and, you know, you don't feel like it's unnatural, even though it is. I mean, Shore Acres and Chicago Golf Club, there's nothing in nature that grows like, or that's, you know, like that. So I, I love that. Um, I, I do enjoy the William Langford work. Um, we're up working in West, Westmore Country Club in Wisconsin. Where at 10 years ago, we we sort of tried to bring some Langford. They had four holes there that William Langford had done because the interstate came through. And the rest of the golf course was built by or designed by the, a member. And so we tried at the time in 2010 to sort of instill some of that Langford style. And I didn't get it right. You know, we the bunkers we did were too crazy. And so we're actually, that's one spot I'm going back and getting to fix the work I did before trying to get more of a Langford identity for them because that's what they they really want to use. You know, we're, made, we're simplifying the bunkers, trying to create the steep, you know, and the plateau greens, um, trying to get more spaces and stuff like that. So I love that stuff. Um, one other architect that I've kind of run into recently, I work, I, I have one consulting job in Westchester County um, and De- it's a Devereaux Emmett golf course out there and he's interesting you know i've been trying to figure him out and reading i i, I bought uh, brad klein's book that that uh, about royal st george or st george's mm-hmm. on long island that gil hans redid um to try to understand it you know he has some had some really interesting tendencies and that course at its rye golf club has um a lot of the emmett stuff still there in the routing but it they have some great photography over from like 1920 to, to today of how it's changed over the years. And we're trying to go back to some of that 1925. We can't get it all back, but you know, he did stuff like pearl necklace uh, bunkering around the greens, which is really interesting. His, uh, his, his greens were all like lay of the land, like right off the fairway. A lot of them pitched backwards, which is a really interesting strategic element. Um, very subtle, um, the way he used it at Rye, um, you know, a lot of parallel flanking bunkers. So I'm trying to learn more about him and get into that. And, you know, just kind of learning as I go and, and listening to you guys on podcasts and Andy Johnson and all the guys who talk about architecture and, and learn and, and, and apply it where I can. Wow. But I'll tell you one last thing. I also love the contemporary guys work. You know, I think the work that I, I follow, uh, the work of, Doak and, and Corin Crenshaw and Gill and DeVries and all those guys as much as I as much as I follow the old stuff because I think their work is incredible. Mm-hmm. So Todd, I was going to ask you about potential fads in GCA and like what you might trends you might see is that, and you're welcome to take this next question in that direction. But you seem to have a really good handle on like the arc of your career, and you're very reflective about that. So. Could you talk a little bit more in terms of this turn, you turning to starting to simplify stuff, what led to that transition and, you know, why, why have you made that move? Well, I think it was, um, 
It wasn't something I came up with. I, I think it was the industry in general started to go in that direction. You know, I think the, the well, I'll give a lot of credit. I, I listened to Matt, you and Andy Johnson talking in a podcast a few, I don't know, a while back. And and you gave credit to him for exposing some of that. Um, and, and I agree. I think the critics in general who have said, you know, wow, we just overdid things and let's let's simplify and it's probably some of the contemporary architects who did that as well and i'm just i'm just following that lead right and i see it now it's like yeah you don't have to overdo this and 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 i got a couple of projects country club of lincoln's a great example we talked about before we came on um where they they have a really old classic layout but they they went in and did work in the 90s and it's super bulky, like it's all these uh, mounds behind the green were added and the bunkers are really bulked up and you can't see in them. And I'm like, we just need to take that off, you know, and, and we could simplify this and really celebrate the property better if you took the clutter away. And it's just something that I think has evolved in, in my taste. Um, I got into the ASGCA in 2010 and, be, and through that organization, I was able to visit more stuff that I was didn't have access to, right? And so many people don't have access to things. And that has opened my eyes to a ton of that. Um, and, and just talking to other architects about it. Um, but I think it's I think it's more of an industry trend that I'm that I just believe in. And so I've I've kind of carried that on. Um, I will diverge into um, fads. <laughs> and I mentioned that I'm using templates or I have and that we're going to do a few of them at Canal Shores. And to be honest, that's one of the fads I think probably should go away <laughs> or at least be settled down. I will explain to you why we're doing it at Canal Shores, but um, it's probably been overdone a little bit. And, and I was hesitant to even explore that at Canal Shores because of that. Um, but there's reasons we're doing it. Um, that The other thing I think is, a, I don't know if it's a fad, but it's a plague that needs to go away is fast green speeds. Um, to me, that's just, it's incredible how much that's impacting the game as much to me as the ball and the technology and how far you hit it. You know, we played some golf in Rhode Island last, last spring or last fall with architects. And I think those greens we played were rolling 12 or 13 on, and we were playing in a 20 mile an hour win and balls were blowing off the green. And it just, it just was hard. And, what it's done is it's taken architecture and it's either dumbed it down or it's made it like unfair, you know? So the really neat contouring that you saw in old greens, you can't, you can't, if you do that, you're going to be in some trouble because it's going to, it's going to impact pace of play. It's going to impact enjoyability of the golf course. Um, if you're going to roll the greens fast and if you want to roll the greens fast, then you got to dumb them down. And so, to me, that's a problem that's really impacted architecture a lot, and it's it's a struggle. That's uh, yeah. There will be some people that feel that that template thing's controversial, but I, I was going to chime in on your Blackstone uh, comments of the greens because reflecting on it, that is absolutely what I love about the course is everything works backwards for the greens, and um, there's some template greens out there, right? Or or ones that I should say they they feel not intentionally. <laughs> okay, because because it's it's you know there's that that very true to the the 
McRainer template holes that you'll see where it's like, okay, they were spot on with the beer. But I feel like uh, there's a few holes, one of which the par three that's coming to mind. I can't remember the nines. I guess it's it's on the front, but the long par three that does feel oh. a bit beeritzy. Um, but it's not yeah. a true beeritz. It's just a, a version of it. So I, is that stuff intentional for you to take a template and just tweak it? Okay, so you're right. I forgot about that hole. That is a controversial hole. <laughs> it is. <laughs> it is. The, the best um, holes are. So I'll, I'll I will use elements. What's that, Kevin? So the best holes are controversial. So the best holes are. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, I will use um, some of that, some of the concepts of, or, or the some of the elements of, of templates in, in different places. Like we just did Abbey Springs a couple of years ago in, in Fontana, Wisconsin, or last year opened up again. Um, I took a, a the 10th hole, which was this almost this like perched, there's a par five, this perch, if you've ever played it, impossible green to hit, and everything would fall off the sides and roll down forever. And we literally inverted that thing and made it into a punch bowl. And it mostly was out of function. Like we wanted to make sure that the ball, instead of filtering away, because everyone hated it, filtered in. And so there's an element of, of, a, par, of a, a template that we added. The thing at, at Blackstone, that was a, a bit of a, a, an effort at a Brits, and, and I don't think we successfully achieved it there. We certainly didn't follow the true template of a Brits. Um, the problem with that hole is it's extremely hard to access a front, the front side of the green. Um, I would have actually, I, it, that hole was actually going to be a par four. Um, and something, we ended up changing the next hole into a par five because of some wetland issues that we had. And so that green, that that short bunker on the left, that was that was actually built already. And then we changed it to a par three and we're like, oh, we'll leave it. It's got a little depth perception to it. It's kind of, I don't think anyone's in it, but um, but the green itself, I would say was a, a mediocre effort at a Brits. It, it, it didn't have, it doesn't have the, the full on, which, you know, the, the deep swale, uh, we didn't get that aggressive with it. And I think if I remember, and it's hard to remember, but I think the owner maybe pulled us back a little bit on that. Uh, wasn't sure what we were doing there. Um, actually, what I would love to do is there's a big swale hollow to the left of the green. And I thought that would make, yeah, I thought that if we could fill that in and make that a, a lower level of the green and almost have it be a double plateau more so oh, than yeah. a Brits, it would really make that that hole interesting. I haven't talked him into that yet, so we're working well, on it. <laughs> as, I, I still play some amateur golf, Todd, and, and as my game kind of, uh, gets less sharp. I'm looking for ways to compete. So when I see a qualifier, I, I, it's, it's inherent, you know, a lot of good golfers will play in that thing, that hole, uh, it's good for a couple of bogeys and a, and a lot of doubles. And, and I just, if yeah. you gotta play it conservative, you can't like a bogey's fine there, just move on. And I love, it's always an advantage for me when, you know, I, sometimes I'll walk off with a three or a four, but I played it smart. I wasn't going to risk four and the guys I'm playing are making five or six or seven on the wrong side of that. And uh, anyways, there, I could go through every, well, every, you know, what's funny about that is um, at our last architects meeting, there was a big discussion or, well, I jokingly threw in a question cause I'm on the education committee. Um, we are discussing greens and things like that. And I jokingly threw in the question, can a par three be strategic? And I got 
I I was like the goat of the or not the goat like the uh, the bad goat like the people were like of course they can and and then we tried to like get into that like what do you mean like you're you're stationary when you hit the tee shot and sure you can use some slopes but is it truly strategic and it's an ongoing conversation what you're describing because of your pre- previous knowledge is you you are using some strategy there just in how you approach it. I heard that same conversation between Tom Doak and Andy Johnson on the Fried Egg podcast a, a few months ago, and they couldn't figure it out either. They didn't have an answer. So that's great. Um, you know that I'm, I'm glad to hear that you actually have a strategy when you play that because it gives me a little bit more thought that maybe there is some strategy in par threes. But um, anyways, fun conversation. Well, m- more fun conversation. We have to shift the attention to. Uh, Canal Shores, a place near and dear to a lot of our listeners. Um, for better or worse, New Club is eternally connected to Canal Shores. You know, we we got involved there uh, through our friend Jason Way in the early days of starting New Club, and and now a lot of places. If you ask a lot of our members where their home course is, uh, a lot of them will say Canal Shores, and they say it with pride. Um, and we do a lot of volunteer work there. We we love helping ripping out that invasive buckthorn that has kind of choked out some of the the holes. And, yep. and so uh, both Kevin and I, and, and Kevin's been a fan of the place too, we, we're, we're just excited to talk to you about that. So I want to make sure we give it you know, a good 20, 30 minutes here to chat about the master plan at Canal Shores, which was recently released with you know yourself being the, um, the architect and designer. So uh, I want to start with you know, how you got involved, what uh, what is unique about this project? I think there'll be a lot of people listening that maybe don't know Canal Shores. Um, how, how to get started and what, what's unique about this project for you? Okay. I mean, this is a this crazy project. Um, so here's how I got started. I, I was, um, I have two young boys, first of all. Um, they're, my one son's turning 16 today and then a 13-year-old. But uh, when they were like nine, seven, nine years old, we were looking. We we're always looking for places to play. We 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 would call it our um, Quitno Boys Summer Golf Extravaganza, and we would just try to find places to play. And Canal Shores was in our rotation, so I knew a little bit of it, but nothing of what was going on there. Um, I actually was in a conference, a seminar on on native grasses of all things, and I met Steve Newman, who you know. Um, and Steve runs the big ecology or was, was the volunteer who was, you know, leading up the ecology efforts there. And, and we got talking at, um, uh, break about the golf course of golf and what I do and what he does. And anyway, he's like, well, you got to come out and, and meet, um, Jason. And, um, so I basically, I kind of invited myself out and I think Jason, uh, Jason way, obviously was well down the road with, you know, he had brought a lot of guys out architects wise and. And um, I think he was well down the road with Dave Zinkin and he had Drew Rogers kind of helping. So I just tagged along on a trip with Drew and we went around. I didn't say much. I just was listening and interested in what they were doing. And, you know, at the end I said, hey, you know, I know you're, you've already got some vision here. I would just love to help you on the backside of things. I'd, I'd volunteer my time to, to project manage um, so that I can be kind of your local guy to figure out how to get contractors and, and really do the dirty work for you and Dave. And, and that's how I got into it. Um, I also had a relationship at the time with Leon McNair. I don't know if you know that name, but Leon was a, a longtime golf pro in the Chicago area. And Leon ended up 
running the Wadsworth Charities Foundation uh, thing he called Links Across America, and they were looking to build and be involved in short course development. So I introduced Leon to 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 the group and got Wadsworth involved, and they you know that was one of their first donations, I think. So just kept a connection, you know. The, I know that project went uh, at the time went went sideways and. And I just stayed in touch a little bit. And I actually was out there at one point planting plants behind the 12th green with Steve Newman. So I, I didn't buckthorn warrior. I, I, Pat Hughes, I keep telling him I'm going to get out there for that. But, um, but I did plant some plants and, and just stayed, stayed in touch. Um, and asked, you know, did some cost estimating here and there for him. But then, um, got a call in summer of 21. And I think it was my connection to the project that, that got me, you know, in the door and the, com the committee that they put together interviewed me and and I, I you know I just told them about my love for the, the idea of the project I, I loved where they were where the initial plan was going with it and we've incorporated some of those ideas into the current master plan um, I think what probably got me hired was um, I have a reputation for being nice <laughs> and diplomatic and you know as well as i do how many different entities are involved in this project mm -hmm. and i think um i think that was you know and i've dealt with that on other projects and i think being able to navigate all the people and we, we can talk about that if you want but um i think that was a big part of it uh, and that's to be honest that's just, that's a huge part of this job is there are so many complicated layers to the project and in the end it's we're just going to rebuild the golf course or, or restore it whatever you want to call it but there's so much that goes into it it's insane if you want to hear about it yeah i know i i think i think uh you know when i asked what what makes it unique i was guessing from the actual work of it when are you gonna land a project where there's four different nonprofits involved. I mean, and so the main nonprofit for those that don't know is this uh, Evanston Wilmette um, 501c3 that, you know, have always run Canal Shores and before Reverse Jans. They lease it from three different uh, uh, properties, basically, both Evanston, Wilmette, and then the Metropolitan Water Reclamation District. And then and to make all this happen, that's why I, I said on the pod with Josh a couple weeks ago, uh, it, it it is a miracle. Like it's a miracle that all these cooks in the kitchen and all these different arrangements and all the cash crunch it, that uh, now you have the first T involved, you have the WGA involved. And I, I think it's beautiful in that way, you know, cause it's, it's, and our friend Jason Way would always say it was, um, I, I, I'll butcher what he actually says, but beautifully complicated is what it boils down to. So maybe give us some insight and, and maybe more specifically, Todd, what is, when it comes to actually building with all those stakeholders in mind, when it comes to actually yeah. making sure that you execute that, I, I, I'm sure you can't make everybody happy. How is that? That seems like a losing proposition, but tell us like, how do you make everybody get, get on board and then, and then how do you build it to, to where there's going to be that base level of, okay, here's what we talked about. And that's, that's what is being executed. Yeah. So <clears throat> Just to just to just to lay out a little bit of the complicatedness, and you 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 gave a pretty good example uh, summary, but you know the property is owned by the MWRD, right? And what's interestingly, we went in um, when I got hired. Chris Charnis, who's one of the volunteers, and I went. He 
went into the Evanston Historical Society and we just perused everything we could find on the history of what, what the property is about. And I think that's a story that needs to keep being told. Like how golf evolved on that property is really amazing. And it went back to 1898, the, you know, the original Evanston Golf Club um, came from something, I think it was called King's Daughters Golf Course. And then it became Evanston Golf Club. And then land started getting pulled away from Evanston Golf Club and it, it sort of started to form, generally speaking, where Canal Shores is. And then, you know, Westmoreland Country Club came out of it. Northmore Country Club came out of there. Um, and then the Evanston Group moved to their current site, right? And then in the early 20s, this the project got, you know, it got the canal came through in 05 and that really kind of jacked up the the Evanston Golf Club and and um then the MWRD you know said we're going to sell off all the private property and all you have for a golf course is these uplands along the canal these public owned uplands and that's when it became a public course and and Bendelow came in which little funny little interesting little tidbit he worked for the American Park Builders when he designed that. And he had just taken over that job as their designer from William Langford, who had gone out on his own. So that's pretty interesting. Just a weird side note. Um, that's good. But anyway, they, you know, they ended up with the course they have today. And so you have the MWRD who owns it. The south quarter, three quarters of the property is leased by the city of Evanston. The north quarter is leased by the park district of Wilmette. Um, but in terms of regulatory, so we're going through the permitting process right now. And so we're permitting with MWRD, we're permitting with the city of Evanston, and then we're permitting with the village of Wilmette, which is separate from the park district. So there's just another entity that's in there. Um, and, and that's an ongoing process. We're hoping to get everything in line here soon. And then we have the Army Corps of Engineers, all the state agencies that, want, that are worried about wetlands and floodplains and things like that. We're getting permits from there. Um, so that's the, that's its own complicated piece. And we hired a, a really good engineer, uh, another little bit of synergy. The, uh, the V3 is the company that we hired engineering wise and a good friend of mine, Greg Waltersdorf. We've worked on golf for a long time. He understands golf. He knows what we're trying to accomplish in terms of getting water off the golf course and being playable and, and all that. So he's great. But then the, the, the young man who is, um, the project manager for V3, is an Evan Scholar and a Northwestern grad who played grew up playing Canal Shores. So it's like, you know, all these pieces are start, are coming together. And and it and I what I want to stress is that the team of volunteers that is working on this is unbelievable. Besides you guys that do the the buckthorn removal and stuff, there is a, a core crew of four or five guys that have dedicated so much time to this. They all have other jobs, and one of them is a retired attorney. Matt Rooney, who I think is working harder than he did when he was an attorney. Um, but without those guys, this project would wouldn't happen, you know, because they understand the, the they, they're all community members. They understand the nuances of communicating to the community, right? Because Chicanel Shores is a golf course first, but it's a park. It's a it's a commuter you know, cross through to the train, the L crosses it. Um, it's a major dog walking center. 
it's a it's a concert venue. <laughs> By the way, if you haven't been, I'm sure you've been to Out of Space. What a, an oh, yeah. amazing concert amazing. every year! Always, always. Yeah. One of, it's it's my favorite in Chicago of of live. live it's, it's incredible. It's incredible. Um, it's Northwestern. You know, pays to park there. So all those elements still have to be dealt with, um, and talking to the community about you know we're going to make things better for you and just can and, and making them understand we're here to fix things you know we want to fix the drainage of the golf course we want to make sure we can grow grass you know um and make sure it's it's covered in grass because that helps everybody um and that we're not going to do anything negatively to impact your property and so um it's just an ongoing communication process and that 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 crew of um, volunteers, and I want to name them because they're amazing, David McPherson and Rick Bald and Chris Charnas and Matt Rooney, um, and I'm missing some guys, but those are like the core guys that I've been working with, and um, they're they're doing the fundraising as well, and all this will be built with private funds. Um, Josh Lesnick was huge when he came in, uh, in, in the, the bringing in of Kemper, so yet another layer. So Kemper manages the golf course, you know, um, but that's been awesome because now we understand operations. Um, they have a handle on, you know, what we're trying to achieve as far as um, what we can maintain, like we talked about earlier. Um, and, and Josh brings in a, an, an entirely different skill set in his experience with working with great architects at Bandon Dunes and Sand Valley and all their great projects and he has an architectural interest and so he's i'm learning from him so um so it's just like this big group it's, it, i'm not trying to make it a kumbaya thing but it's um it really is a synergy and and everyone's works hard and, and knows their lane and sometimes we critique the other lanes but we try to stay in those lanes and and i feel like my job is as much to lead this thing as it is to learn as i'm going along um and, and to really understand the community impact here, I live nearby. I don't live in the community. I live in Park Ridge, you know, 15 minutes away, but um, it's an amazing community place. And if nothing else, just to preserve that aspect of it, um, you know, it's complicated, but I think it's so worth it. It's fun. I'm enjoying it. Yeah, did I answer I, your question? I don't even know. You did. And, and you just <laughs> I, I, a lot of angles there. And you just asked the next question that I want to bring up because this is such a community course and it's a community course in the broadest sense. It doesn't just exist within a community, but it has these things like dogs, bikes, roads cutting through it, a canal, concerts, the whole thing. Like what are some of those calm difficulties, problem solving, whatever it is that have come up to this point that you're like in your other projects, maybe you didn't have to handle, but here unique to this property, you do have to handle. Oh man, so many. Um, well, so one one thing, one of my biggest goals here as an architect, I, I know one of your questions you sent me, Matt, was, you know, what do you want people to take away after they played it when it's renovated? And one of the big things is I don't want to screw it up. And and I say that semi-tongue in cheek, but I, I do mean it because the golf course has so much character and charm and it's got a ton of attention nationally and you know, that's what people love about it. And, and so we are going to be working on everything, right? Because we got to fix the drainage. We got to fix the infrastructure. 
So it'll feel, it'll appear like we're having a heavy hand on the property, but, but really from an architectural standpoint, I really want to have a light hand on the property because I want to preserve what is there. Um, there are two major, I guess, major changes that we're making, um, two or three. So we're going to create a youth center right outside the clubhouse between Central and Lincoln. And the WGA is involved, the Western Golf Association, the first tee is involved and the golf practice are involved. And the WGA is obviously coming into, and Josh, I'm sure talked about all about this, but uh, create a caddy program there where they'll train caddies, which I think is a, an amazing thing. And then those caddies will, will graduate to other courses, you know, up the shore. Um, and then the, the first tee is going to make this one of their main centers. And so that area in the clubhouse will be a, a big training center. We'll have a big half acre green. I call it Shores Half Acre, no pun intended. Um, that will be a putting course in a, in a practice area. And then the first hole will stay there, will be there most of the time. But when they overflow and they need that as a practice area, we'll actually take the starting hole up to number two which is the current third hole, if you know the golf course today. So in essence, we're losing two holes. So on the north end of the golf course, on hole six and seven, the very north end, we're actually proposing to turn that into three holes and we're gonna route them counterclockwise, or no, clockwise, they go counterclockwise now um, for a few reasons. Yeah, so so the sixth, the, it'll, what will be the fifth hole, we'll play up the left, and then we actually are designing a putting hole on the north end. It's about a 60 yard putting only hole and it's on access with the Baha'i Temple. And you know, one of the reasons we're doing it is because you play those two holes up there. If you don't know the temple's there, you, you might not even see it because it's so covered in trees and whatnot. And so we literally want to celebrate that piece of architecture. And so this hole is, it, it's, we're going to clear all the brush up on the top of the ridge and it'll be a 70 yard putting hole and it'll give you time to reflect and look at the temple and it's got a little half moon crescent shape to it so you know that's one of the symbols of the baha'i faith um and so that'll be our sixth hole and then we'll play back as the seventh hole and and um that has the, in turn because we're changing the routing of those holes we got to make sure that we talk to all the neighbors and explain to them that we're not that we're actually making this safer because those holes sliced out of bounds before six and seven <laughs> and they were long long golf holes the house behind six green would get hit all the time and so that's one of the things where we're trying to be as open as we can with the community um there's another golf hole uh the current fourth which will be a, our third but if you remember that golf hole the green is right by the ninth tee right and it's a major safety problem and we want to pull that green back but there's two houses on the right that get pummeled and so there's a there, you know there's some things we're trying to do to make that safer but we want to make sure all, you know so the community those are the kind of community involvements that we're getting in tree management is a huge thing too it's there's shade one of the problems with the greens is as much about how they're constructed as as how much shade are on them and so we're selectively clearing some trees we have a list of tag trees and then we're going to make up do a replacement program but we want to make sure the community understands what we're doing with trees that was one of the things that i think was a big discussion five years ago when the plan started um but so that's all that you know that's 
we brought people and invited the community to come into the room and ask questions and and we've tried to be responsive to all of that but that that's just another layer to all the other layers in the long run but the uh, it's it's a fun interesting process i'll tell you frustrating sometimes <laughs> i can't imagine that and i know you got other projects too so this one uh it, what always stood out with and you nailed it to me the fact that all these people that are busy in other aspects of life give their time and 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 Kemper I think is a great example of them getting involved it, it, there's far more profitable opportunities for Kemper to get involved other places they they this means something to them too and um yeah. and everybody that's involved does feel like you know that's figure it out that's do it for the right reasons it, you, you just you get that sense and I can't say that you, you get that everywhere, right? A lot of courses are built for hyper exclusion and built for um, uh, uh, making a buck if they're if they're trying to go that route, or they're just just ingrained in the past, or they're you know public facilities that are trying to get daily fees up. And and Canal Shores, I feel like it's the in- incentive is entirely around the community and and this asset remaining an asset and being more useful for for more of the community. So I commend you for <laughs> keeping. You know, keeping going with this thing. Um, a very simple question: How the heck do you create width at a place like Canal Shores? <laughs> you don't. <laughs> <laughs> you don't. Um, you know, there's a couple of holes that have some width, and so we're going to take advantage of that. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about templates. Um, I had said earlier that that fad should go away, but so the reason templates there, there's five green so. Let me break this down. There's 10 greens out there that we're going to restore from the original Bendelow. And when I say restore, I essentially mean if you can think about uh, the ninth hole is a great example. Like there's this little circle green in the middle of this big square pad, right? And that square pad was the original green. So we're going to go back to those original edges. And then what we want to do is expand those greens, probably mostly off the front. There's 10 of them. Um, just to get more space. So I think they average 2,200 square feet right now and they just get beat to hell. Um, We're going to end up 4,500 maybe or so, you know, the right size to fit that property. But um, so there's 10 of those. That's that's kind of a restoration project. And really it's that if you read through the notes of how they were built, you know, they talk about he elevated these greens and you see the old pictures and you can still see it out there. There's kind of those sharp edges. They're kind of squared off. That's really what's led the architecture uh, of the rest of the project. Um, when Josh Lesnick got involved and we started talking about what's our, our theme here, he's like, you know, this maybe it's kind of an homage to Chicago architecture. And we we're thinking about Shore Acres and, and uh, Chicago and Donald Ross's work, William Langford's work. And so those shapes really fit into that. And really, to me, kind of brought in the idea of could we do some templates um, so one of the holes, and I'm getting to your width question, uh, there is some width on like the 15th hole and we're going to give a little bit of Alps strategy to that. Um, the green itself is not a, a replica, it's, it's a restoration, but on the left side of that golf hole, 20 yards short of the green, we're going to build a pretty substantial landform and there's some function to it because if you know, the 16th tees are right there to the left of the green. And I wanna protect that a little bit. That landform is going to cut across the fairway. And if you play down the left, which is going to be the more generous area, 
you're going to have an obscured vision to the green. And over that mound, there's a, a couple of hollows that one will feed you left and one will feed you right. If you hit it right, it could feed you on the green. If you don't catch it right, it'll feed you into an area below the green. If you play down the right side, um, where you got to kind of, there's some parallel hollows we're going to enhance there, and we're going to actually put a principles, I call it the principles way, uh, shout out. I was going to ask. But I was gonna ask. Uh, I, I spent so, time in that bunker digging that thing, Todd. Don't do it to us, man. It, yeah, <laughs> it's gonna be a hollow. It won't have sand in it, but it, but that'll terminate the um, that that right side. So you got to play a pretty crafty shot to get it in the right spot, but you'll be wide open. So that's the kind of strategy we're throwing in where we can. Um, the 18th hole, we're going to model the green because there's a road behind it. We're gonna we're gonna play on the road template. Um, we do have a Baritz, um, there, the tunnel hole, I call it. Uh, so hole 11, you know, as you go, that's the one place you go under the tracks in a tunnel. And I, I, I one day I was out there, I'm like, you know, gosh, this tunnel is kind of like the, the swale of a Baritz in, you know, if it were a half shell. And I'm like, what if we lined that tunnel up with the swale of a Baritz and we made a Baritz green here? So the, mm -hmm. so there's going to be a Baritz green that's right over on the edge of the canal and that literally that middle swale will line up directly with the tunnel. And I think from a reverse jam standpoint, it'll be really interesting now if you could play through that wow. tunnel and, and into the swale of the Brit. Wow. So yeah, that's, that's where the, the other place where the templates came in is if you know the north end where I was just talking about the rerouting of those three holes, there's kind of that central, uh, that central mound that's odd. I don't know where it came from, that long mound that runs through the middle of the hole we're going to use that mound and, and, and reorient it and break it up. And so because we have all that dirt, we're going to put a punch ball in uh, on the fifth hole. And then on the seventh hole coming back, we're going to use that to create a Redan type uh, a hole. So those were the, that's where the templates come in. The rest of it's restoration. There's a few original greens. Um, where we can get width, we will. But again, it's width out there is going to be all about tree clearing. And it's all about especially along the canal bank, getting rid of all that invasive. And if, if you actually go in there, you've been in there, Matt, if you've cut buckthorn down, you've got 15, 20 feet till the bank goes down to the canal. So we're going to try to restore that and give a little bit of width to the project. Um, but you're pretty tight there and you're, you always will be. It's, it's part of the charm. Part of the charm of the place. Was there ever, you know, we'll be out there with our loppers and, and, just having different conversations and we'll daydream a little bit. Was there ever any discussion of a tee or a green or, or any plain surface getting right next to the canal? Uh, you mean like down low? Down low. Yeah. Down the slopes. Yeah. So one of the things that I don't think anyone knows is, is what are all the restrictions, regulatory restrictions. You can't do that. <laughs> that that's actually a floodplain down there. Um, figured that the, that was the, the MWRD, Yeah, the MWRD doesn't really want us to screw with the banks of the canal. Um, so, you know, and that actually is impacting how we drain the place. I know one of the ideas in the past was like, could we do a lot of natural swales and burns and stuff like that? And I want to do that. But what we're not allowed to do is cut through the bank of the canal and drain that out. And those swales and burns to be able to do them right and make sure they drain and function uh, and people can play out of them, you gotta have some pitch on them. 
So by the time you get them to the canal edge to drain them out, they're pretty deep. And we got kind of poo-pooed against that. So um, we are going to be draining the fairways. I'm, what I'm trying to do is get everything to push off to the side. And we are going to put them into piping at some point. And we're going to, we, we have the ability to tie into the drain. There's some big storm sewers that come in through Evanston and Wilmette that go into the canal now and we'll tie into those. Um, trying to keep that as much off to the side as possible uh, so that, you know, you don't get that modern feel to this. I don't want to do that. So I'm trying, to, we're doing a lot of how no bunkers on the golf course, um, which is, uh, an idea that Josh brought to the table, and, and I love it. Um, a lot of what we'll do to, to kind of create hazards is we'll, we'll have some steeper slopes in certain edges of the greens, and that'll kind of fall into grass hollows. Um, and then that will be where we get some of our uh, dramatics and get some of the elevation and that, that raised green look that Bendelow uh, brought to the site. Um, you know, some shadowing, things like that. So, but it'll also make it a lot more playable and we won't have to maintain sand. So those are all the little different ways we're looking at the project and trying to bring all these things together. Yeah, I think one of the most impressive aspects of Canal Shores is it's, it's always been in touch with the ecology, right? It's always had an ecology as a, a pillar um, there and that ties into the community and everything around that. And you've touched on this already, but what other considerations are made for the course, you know, in order to be, in order to support the environment and not in conflict with the local environment? Yeah, I mean, everything we're doing is meshing with the ecology plan that was made five years ago. Um, so we're actually, in some of the areas where we're moving some greens, we're, we're going to allocate space to literally create ecological zones. So uh, like a butterfly garden or, you know, we have to replant trees to 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 take the to take um, to replace the ones we're taking down. So we're talking about maybe there's a couple of areas we literally kind of reforest um, where it won't impact golf uh, or or um, you know shade concerns. Um, I think removal. You know, the buckthorn warriors or lumberjacks, whatever they're called now, have done a great job of pulling the invasives out. Um, but you only can do so much with volunteer work. We're gonna get in there with a real a professional crew now and, and just continue what they've done. So we'll pull all the invasives out uh, and we're gonna try to grab them out by the roots um, so that the, the native, so that first of all, there's more air and sunlight to the property, but the canal banks can then, you know, reestablish in some areas. Um, we have some actual plantings that are going to be to going in on the canal banks. Um, that's really been headed up by Steve Newman and um, his ecological uh, approach. Um, one of those projects was actually already done up on the 16th hole. They pulled out all the, in the invasives and the scrub growth on the bank and they've replanted it last year. Piso came in, I think, and did it, Piso, Piso. And um, that should be growing in this year. So all of that is hand in hand with what we're doing. Um, we're we're going to create a enhance a couple of the existing wetlands. We're going to create a new wetland on the 17th hole. I didn't explain that hole, but there's actually a 17.5 hole <laughs> that comes into play every once in a while. Um, so things like that is all part of our strategy. And and water management, of course, is huge with all of that as well. And and how 
you know, we need to get water off that golf course. That's if we can't do that, then this, there's no purpose in this project because that's been the biggest problem out there, right? Is you get sloppy conditions, you can't mow it. Um, it's just problematic. So that's infrastructure is the biggest thing. Um, and eco ecology is all rolled into that as well. You mentioned 17 and you mentioned yeah. water drainage. I have to do this for a, a buddy, new club member, one of our lead artisans, as we call him, uh, Matt Gothel was the, the gentleman who took, he took time off of work to dig that trench on 17 with, with oh, the Wayne. burn, the burn. Thank you. The burn. Yeah. Um, inspired by Cruden Bay. We had, he had images of Cruden Bay up and they were digging together. I, I went out, brought them Gatorades. It was like a hundred degrees when they did it. Uh, but I, that was a short, that was Jason's quick answer <laughs> with zero budget yeah. to, Hey, this spot, we can't mow, you know, it just water sits here and it's very close to the wetland. It's not in it, but it's very close to it. So, so he came up with that, that little burn. I know that's an amateur uh, thing, but what's the plan for, for that area around there? I think it's just additional drainage or what else is in, in the works? So um, one thing that's interesting, so I mentioned about the youth golf center in front of the clubhouse. When we close the first hole, we'll actually be two holes down. So we added the hole up at the north, but when that first hole is not being used, we've actually got an extra hole where 17 green is now. So 16, work with me here, 16 green is gonna be pulled to the edge of the canal. Um, it's gonna sit right at the top, right, right over the canal. And it's kind of uh, inspired by Sleepy Hollow out in uh, New York. Um, the St. Lawrence River isn't behind it, but you know, use your imagination. The 17th tee will be behind there. And, and so we're able to pull the 17th tee back and we're gonna build a new 17th green short of the wet area you're talking about. Like maybe, I think it's hundred yards, 70 yards short of where the green is now. And that'll be the new 17th. Then we have a new teeing area that'll play to the old 17th green. It's a little shorty, a little bonus hole, call it 17 and a half. And it'll be plugged into the routing when the first hole's closed. And that area between the tee and the green that you're talking about where they built, they hand dug that burn is gonna become a wetland. And it serves a, a stormwater function that the city of Evanston is asking us to create where we hold water there for a while. So we're actually going to, we're not gonna have a burn there unfortunately, but we're going to have a wetland and, and that wetland will also serve to protect the current wetland that's just east of it. So there will be function there, but we're, what we wanna certainly, that's a big water problem. Um, but it's just cool. I mean, the, the golf course had, those are the funky things that we're doing with the routing. They're not major, but they're, they're significant. And I think people will comment on them, you know, um, that sometimes this, this hole's in play, sometimes it's not. How logistically we do a scorecard for that, we haven't figured that out yet. But um, I think that's the fun part of what's, what we're doing, you know, that people are gonna come out and go, wow, that's different. And, you know, we putted a hole, you know, things like that. Um, and we're solving problems at the same time, solving drainage problems and things like that. So that to me is where the architecture of this comes into play. Um, and, and it's been the fun part for me. And, and um, you know, it all comes together, hopefully in June, we'll get going on it. Todd, one last question that's coming to mind is, and I know, thank you for the time that this has been just fascinating for, for both Kevin and I and, and all of our listeners, I'm sure. Um, but I, I'm a, a, a father. I feel like I'm a brand new father every single day, but I got a, a two-year-old and, and a four-month-old now. And 
uh, you know, when we had the two-year-old, uh, we would go up to Canal Shores and you just kind of envision this is the place that they're going to learn the game. This is the place that, you know, kids will, will, will grow up. And uh, I'm looking at the visuals of the practice area that's currently one and, and two and how that's redesigned. You know, I'm seeing some potential short course there for the real little ones, mm-hmm. right? Is give, give me a sense of how, how you approach that, knowing that, you know, the first time a kid has a club in their hand is going to be in that area. Yeah, so that actually can be a short course, Matt. That's uh, I don't know if you saw it in, routed that way, but it will have so many different ways it can be used, right? So the big putting green, the main use will be nine or 18 hole putting course outings, things like that. Um, but I also have, a, we also are looking at using that first green up to the north And then that green is big enough, that 30,000 square foot green is big enough that we can chop it into three zones. And we actually will probably be putting synthetic pads out there where you will play it some, you can play it as a three hole routing. So if your kids, when they grow up, and by the way, I have a 16 year old and it feels like I'm a new dad every day. (laughs) Okay, good. So it doesn't, it doesn't change. (laughs) Um, But um, that will be able to be played in a three or four hole routing when they want to. Um, so I am envisioning that there will be days when the pro, the, the pra- golf practice or the first tee, you know, have a little tournament there. Um, you finish off your day with the junior golf program and, and you play three holes. Um, the other aspect to the bigger golf course is we're not doing traditional tees. We're going to take the fairway and we're going to mow it back to the one big strip. And there's some maintenance reasons for that. We're hoping to use one more for the whole thing. But that strip will have various flat pads in it. And so you, the yardage, you can play all the way up. And we're going to put a family marker out there um, where you, as a dad, will carry, your, you'll bring your kids to these spots. And it'll be a T, um, but it'll be super short. Um, and so that's where we're trying to cater to you as a dad with two and four-year-olds, all the way back to you as a good player. Um, and so I think there's going to be multiple ways that you guys will be able to enjoy this more ways than you can now um, that are specifically set up for families and young kids. Uh, I'm so excited about the area by the clubhouse. And, and the first tee has a young lady named Taylor Lambertson, who's going to be running that program. And she's incredibly um, she's got a lot of great ideas. And I think her style is great. And she they blend well with the golf practice. So you're going to have oodles of opportunities for your kids to learn the game for sure um uh, one thing i want to end with here is i'm also excited about this caddy program and i i hope it gets a lot of attention you know the fact that kids will be able to learn to caddy there is one thing you know that's that's outstanding i have two boys that are caddies right now and and they barely got any loops their first two years because it was all training and blah 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 I think that's outstanding, but I also think from the public golfer standpoint, how often do you get a caddy? Most people, you know, it's it's the, it's 80% of people have never used one, never will. And, and the first time they do go use a caddy on a high-end golf course, it's intimidating. You don't know what to do. You don't know what you're supposed to, how much, do you rake the bunker? Do they rake the bunker? Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So it's almost as much of a learning experience in my mind for the golfers as it will be for the caddies. And so that's so cool. I mean, I know I'll go up there and use it and, and it's paid for, right? The, the WGA pays for it. So 
Is there any better way to learn how to use a caddy or be a caddy? It's it's just cool. If there's anybody from the WGA listening, please reach out because multiple of our members have uh, wanted to to do that. They want to, uh, you know, they they were caddies. They understand the kind of stresses around being a new caddy and learning the loop and. Uh, you know, the fact that these are subsidized programs for those that don't know the WGA will actually subsidize so kids can learn how to caddy and be a part of it. And they'll pay your caddy fees. Um, and you should, you know, tip on top of that, but it is such a cool program. And the fact that it's going to a place that we already frequent and love to, to play, uh, we'd love to be involved. So if anyone's at the WGA listening, um, reach out. I'd like to, I'd like to put some structure around that to where you can reliably, cause I think that's one of the challenges. I know they, they try to get it off at Jackson park that the caddies need to know when they do have that loop. Uh, the players need to be invested in taking the loop and just the reliability of a public golfer saying, yep, I'm going to take a caddy today at seven 30, you know, be ready. Um, and, yeah. But Todd, no, this is, this is so cool. I, I hope what uh, people take away from listening today is so much of, you know, we've had many architects on, we've, we've listened to plenty of other podcasts that have architects on and the, the, the multitude, I think Canal Shores is a unique project for sure. And you, you highlighted well why that is, but just the multitude of considerations. I think we all kind of get a little too much maybe into the, the punchiness of, the, the wow factor or the, the feature that we fall in love with. And, and we all see it through a reflection of our, our own game, but the things you hit on today of uh, all, all the nonprofits that are involved, the land properties in use, the drainage that's important, the ecology that's important, the dogs that are there. The, I mean, it, it, again, it, it just, I have a lot of appreciation for your, your line of work because it, it is so much beyond just the, the building a cool golf hole. It is. And, and I will, you know, but in the end it's, it's building a cool golf hole. <laughs> so I do encourage you guys to come out when we're building this thing. I, I, I am, I'm an open book. I, I, I hope everyone that is involved and has been involved can come out and see what we're doing. Give us your opinions. You guys have seen a lot of golf and uh, you know, I think it's going to resonate if you, for you, but also for us, if you can come out and, and give your two cents. So you're, we're starting June 1st, June 5th, if all goes well. But please reach out and, and come out and join us and take a tour. And, and you know, I'd love to have, have all of your input as well. We'll take you up on that invite. I know the neighbors of Canal Shores already, they don't need the invite. They'll, they'll be right there with you. Right. <laughs> they will be right there watching us. <laughs> and and uh, I want to extend an invite to you, Todd, is our annual hangout for New Club Golf Society is on May 20th, on Saturday. And I think it would be so cool if you have the availability. Um, we'd love for you and your sons or whoever to play and and meet some, some folks that, you know, one thing that... Uh, is is unique from our standpoint is most of our folks that that go to canal there's a lot that are in the community now and and they might not say it but i think they subconsciously picked where to live based on this little hidden gem in canal shores but even if you're from out of state there's something so cool about going to and kevin you should be the one to comment on this but but stopping by and and seeing canal shores it 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 almost is it's built for the community first and foremost but I almost feel like it's a landmark for golfers at this point. And Kevin, can you comment on that at all? 
Yeah, I think what I appreciate the most about it, you know, we, we throw around this word community golf course all the time. Um, but like what I felt there is one, an insider in terms of being a golfer, right? Showing up and you feel at home. But I also felt like an outsider in the sense of like, no, there's an actual community here, right? And I'm not a part of that community. Like this is actually a true vibrant community of people that live around here that are attached to this course that know each other, just they're hanging out talking, you know, um, and I, I appreciate that. Like, cause you just feel like an insider too much when you're traveling in golf. And when you see that, you're like, wow, no, like this is a hub. This is actually a hub that is central to this group of people. And if it disappeared, their lives would change. Uh, and I think that, you know, that matters a lot in, in the golf world. It's evidence in St. Andrews, huh? Yeah, that's <laughs> it a great, it is. great, yeah, great comparison there. Yeah. Evanston and Wilmette, sorry, I don't want to leave Wilmette out. <laughs> that's right, that's right. Yeah, no, it's it's awesome. Well, and Matt, I appreciate that invite. I'd love to learn more and, and uh, learn more about what you guys do, too. So let's let's circle back on that for sure. I may... May sounds good to me. That sounds good. I'll put you in your foursome will be Steve Newman, Matt Rooney, uh, some of these some of these guys that I'll, I'll extend the invite to as well. But no, Todd, Perfect. Th th thanks so much for being with us today. Uh, really enlightening stuff. And um, I think we got to have you back on soon because whether it's Canal Shores or any of your other projects, uh, really enjoyed what, what you shared with us today. And, and this won't be the last invite to the backdrop. Fantastic. And it was great being with you guys and it, Matt and Kevin, uh, I enjoyed it. So look forward to the next time. Professor, what'd you think about our chat with Todd? I love talking to golf course architects. I think it's easy for those of us that are pseudo architects, which I'd put most of us in that category where we know just enough to be dangerous. Um, and it often leads to us making generalizations or grouping them together. So it's always fun to actually sit down with someone in that craft that's an expert at it because you get different perspectives. You get different ideas. They all have their own opinions, thoughts. They've developed their craft. So it's just so much, so enjoyable to, to listen to, to the way they look at what they do. In this case, I think what stood out to me was this idea, you know, you got on the fads for a little bit and you could tell he's passionate about talking about fads and golf course architecture. And so it just sprung to my mind, just the general idea of fads. Uh, yeah, the general idea of that, that we're always wrestling with, like, is it a fad that we're just going back to golden court, uh, golden age architecture, right? Is that a fad? And I think, you know, I was thinking long and hard about that. And I think it's, it's a good point of difference to to take a look and say, when something's informed by history and the roots of something versus when something is just a trend. So if you look at a lot of the, what they some people call the dark ages, that was a trend that just evolved out of a rejection of everything World War II and prior. So that truly was a fad. There was no historical roots that necessarily, I mean, they touched on different ideas of art and so on and incorporated that into their work. Um, but it was a fad and that was a new, new thing. So I think it's important to distinguish especially where my passion is with the golden age architecture, like if we're honoring history and traditions and some of the principles there, that's very different than a fad that's just along because of the current modern stage and things that have just happened now. And maybe those modern things later on will be quote unquote fad that's informed by history. But I think anytime we're really talking about what's a fad and what's not, we should be careful there. Yeah, yeah. I found that was a really, the fad portion of the conversation stuck out to me. Um, the other thing for, for me was just generally 
the idea of, you know, Todd Quintino, golf course architect, he, he's not a, uh, he's not a celebrity architect. And I think, you know, so much of this golf course architectural world is really a lot of the content we consume and everything else is, is geared around a small list of big names, right? Tom Doak, Gil Hans, Corin Crenshaw, uh, and, and people that worked for them, for those guys. And it felt like, it feels like it's, it's, perhaps an echo chamber, chamber of an echo chamber. And here's Todd, who is a guy I literally met in a Chipotle at one point and didn't know who he was, didn't know the name Todd Quintnow, but I had played multiple golf courses of his, right? And I liked those golf courses, but I didn't really put the, the person in the name because he's not quote unquote a, a celebrity architect. So I, I think it's, it follows a little bit of like the celebrity chef mentality in a way. And it's, I, I find it very humbling. He, he, he struck me as an extremely humble guy who's really just worked hard and tried to uh, improve his craft and is extremely open, uh, even to the fact where he's inviting people to come out and watch him build. You know, he was very open about that. Uh, I think he knows at Canal people will anyways, but he, he was he was just kind of like, come, come see what we do. And I, I like that. I, I just like the, the fact that he's a, a guy who's darn good at his job and and is going to put, you know, his expertise and his experiences into every piece of a uh, thing he puts out there. And I related to like restaurants because it would kind of be sad, right? If you said, I'm only going to restaurants that have these big name chefs, right? How many, how many awesome dining experiences would you miss out if you only said this small list of people? And, and I, I don't know, it made me think, okay, don't, don't just, because I, I'm, I fall victim to this too. If I'm in a new town and I see, you know, some golf courses, I'm going to say, okay, do I know that architect? Do I know that architect? Oh, wow. You know, Gil built a place around here. Like maybe I will, would be better off and a happier golfer if I actually just said, I don't know this course. I don't know this architect, uh, but I'm going to go play it anyways and just see what it's all about. And I think those that don't know Todd Quintino would learn he's about a lot of really cool things and the courses that that he's built specifically are, are really good ones to play. That's an amazing point, especially you use that word learn there at the end of just you're sacrificing learning opportunities by not seeking out, you know, other architects and other experiences and just sticking to the big names, the top 100s, whatever they are. You really are sacrificing experiences by doing that. Um, yeah. yeah. Makes and me rethink like how much bucket list chasing I do and and where my brain goes, like you said, when you're traveling somewhere, first thing. Yeah, and, and like in any industry, how many Todds are out there doing good work, right? That deserve a shot. And so I, I'm pretty excited after that chat to see, you know, him get a shot at a place I care a lot about and I'm very fond of in Canal Shores. So yeah, it, it, there's a lot to look forward to. Probably not our last episode on Canal Shores for the foreseeable future. Um, but thanks to our, our sponsor, The Bag Drop, Golf Blueprint, Kevin. I'm happy to report I've pulled out the putting mat. My office has been a mess, but I finally pulled out the putting mat and I'm getting in some drills. I did the waterfall this morning. I had mirror, mirror, the mirrors are out. I did that drill, social distancing. I'm getting the wand to, to behave this year. I think, that, I think putting will be my number one objective of 2023. You're a dangerous person when the butter gets going. I'll say That's that. You get, you get some, I mean, I think this is true for a lot of golfers, but especially you, that confidence you get when the hole gets big, Man, you start pumping it 20 yards further off the tee. It's about the only time I ever see you hit good irons is when you're putting good. Um, <laughs> Don't miss the no, green. No. You got um, to putt. 
Yeah, well, I'm excited to see that when we uh, we show up to the spring meeting and uh, if you get rolling down there, it's 29 watches on. So thank you to Golf Blueprint for supporting the show, for supporting New Club. We'll see them at the spring meeting at Sweetens Cove. Check them out at golfblueprint.com. Professor, have a great week. Till next time. Talk to you next time.